1: Welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. My name is Álvaro Casovello, and today I will have a conversation with Monica Ricketts about her new book, Who Should Rule? Men of Arms, The Republic of Letters, and the Fall of the Spanish Empire, published by Oxford University Press in 2017. Monica Ricketts is an assistant professor of history specializing in colonial Latin America at Temple University. Professor Ricketts, welcome and and thanks for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me here, Alvaro.
1: Uh, thank you. Uh, as it is usual here uh, at the New Books Network, we we like to start off by asking you a little bit about your sort of biographical background and your intellectual trajectory in sort of more personal and general ways. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? What do you consider to be your academic influences? And how did this project that is now the book came came to be?
0: Thank you, Yes. Um, so I'm from Peru. I was born there and I was born actually the year that a military dictatorship started in Peru. It was a left-wing military dictatorship and it lasted for 12 years. Um, and I remember my childhood, um, uh, that this was, um, you're from Uruguay. So you know what I mean that you grow up talking about politics it's like all the time everyone talks about politics during breakfast lunch and dinner and my father was a journalist and so I kind of like lived through these tensions of writing while the military were there and my uncle was also a journalist and he was exiled and and anyway so then uh, a democracy started in 1980 and at the same time that um Guerrilla started, uh, Sendero Luminoso, Shining Path. And it was such troubling times. And this came part of my life, our life, my generation, you know. It was um, this internal conflict, war, violence, and this constant effort of of failed states, failed attempts at things. Then I went to university. I decided to study history and had the fortune of have great mentors great professors one Scarlett O'Fallan Godoy who is an expert on the bourbon reforms and on the 18th century rebellions and revolts and and she was an inspiration we we're dear friends and my other professor was Juan Carlos Estensoro who is a cultural historian who works on religion but who pushed us stop to read primary sources, to go to the archive, to look for sources. And so thanks to them, I really developed this interest. And I finished my undergraduate education in Peru and worked as a journalist for a while. Uh, well, I did other things. And while the Fujimori sort of like era was at its peak and the shine path also was sort of like it was the end of it, it was very troubling times, and I lived through it in a newspaper that was in the middle of these struggles because there were bribery cases. And it was a fascinating time, and um, I think it has shaped me, um, totally shaped me. Um, thanks to the support of Scarlett of I applied for a fellowship and got into Harvard University, Something I still can't understand how that <laughs> happened, and there I, I could do what I was dreaming of doing, which was doing comparative history. I wanted to, to learn about other places, to think about Peruvian history in, in more open ways, in sort of like to, to see how the history of the place where I lived. Um, Compared with others, or how I could read it in parallel with others. And that was exactly what was happening at Harvard with Atlantic history, with international, led by Professor Bernard Bailey, and then Professor Akira Iriyi was sort of like conducting all these seminars on international history. It was a very, it was a great time. And then I had these wonderful professors, John Codesworth, who worked on institutions and economic history in a comparative way. Um, who put a lot of emphasis on the law and its role. And Professor John Walmack, who is an amazing historian and who really trained me. I hope this explains a little.
1: Yes, yes. How
0: I came out. Oh, and this project, actually, I, I had it all. I always wanted to study um, this generation, this first generation of intellectuals. And I first got interested in the enlightenment and thought that I could, you know, write something or understand this first generation of failed intellectuals in through the Enlightenment. And then I as I was reading and doing more research, I just realized that I couldn't couldn't fully understand them without taking into in the military into consideration that their story was tied to that other part of the story. Um and it's not that I like military history or you know, to read these boring reports, but I thought it was necessary to write right. what I wanted to write.
1: Right, and, and and precisely the book is about sort of the rise of this sort of two new cohorts of men, what you call a sort of a new uh, group of military cadres or sort of uh, men of arms, and a new cohort of of intellectuals, uh, both in Peru and and in Spain, and and as you, as you were saying. You you make an explicit effort uh, to connect these two places, which I mean, one is always tempted to to look at them uh, discreetly, without any connect. Well, without any connections beyond sort of a sort of a, a varnish of of colonialism. So I wanted I wanted to ask you about uh, because you you in the book you say that this is a, an explicit methodological choice to see Spain and Peru together, and I wanted to ask you about methodological choice. And you mentioned Atlantic history. Uh, one one could mention also imperial imperial history also very important perhaps at, at Harvard and other other American and British particularly institutions. So how how do you come to understand that Peru and Spain must be looked sort of together uh, at not just perhaps comparatively comparatively but also sort of uh, connected and and how do you think that this differs? Perhaps uh, you can talk a bit more about sort of. The tendency within uh, in Latin American countries to do national histories, and how so how this differs to that tendency in Latin America, perhaps to do national histories, and how that may defer to other approaches to Latin American historiography here in the U.S.
0: Um, I don't think that this um, is that proving history at this point must be. Um, understood in relationship to Spain, I think that for the question I had and for the history I wanted to write, it was necessary. And Mm -hmm. it's a matter of, you know, the question and the approach that you take. I do value national history and local history a lot. And it it just depends on what question do you have. And so the question that I had, which was why ultimately, right?, why was it so difficult for men of letters to put together a project that worked? Why was it so difficult to build working civilian institutions to have a functioning state? And this is not just my question. I think this is a, a, a sort of like a haunting question for Latin American historians. It's a traditional question in a way. Um, and there are many different ways of answering it Um of what, why was this not possible? Well, it was because of the war. It was because of you know, um, bankruptcy. There are so many different ways to answer it. Um, I wanted to look at the individuals, at the, the actors um, implied in this process. And in doing so, I thought that I could not understand them without the imperial context because their story was not a, a particularly local one because um, men of letters at that time were reading and inspired by the Enlightenment. Um, they were reading, If which when I went in, and I wanted to know who they were, what they did, what their dreams were. So I went and looked for what they wrote and what they cited and what they were citing, um, whether we like it or not, you know, were Spanish newspapers. Um, what they were inspired by were, were the old some of them the old Spanish projectistas of the 18th century you know of the early 18th century they were not necessarily citing local um, poets they were citing you know Bourbon officers yeah, they were citing las casas um, and they were reading when they could uh, Reynal and all these French writers and and got into trouble because of that. So I thought that I could not understand them without taking this broader approach. Um, And the same implied for the military because these were people um, trained in the Royal Armies. And the Royal Armies, when I started reading about them and how they were designed and, you know, what kind of institutions they were, these were not local autonomous institutions. The armies of Peru were part of the royal armies, broadly conceived as imperial armies. And so I thought that it was necessary.
1: Great, great. That's that's, that's a very, very enlightening answer. So uh, your your work precisely, uh, just to pick up on, on that, advances the, the thesis that certain reforms undertaken by the Spanish crown in the late 18th century prompted the emergence of a new type of military, of a new type of army, if not of the military itself as a political actor in the Spanish Empire, and later in revolutionary and independent Latin America. So I wanted to ask you sort of two questions about this. One is, what are, what are the defining characteristics of these new men of arms when, when, when one thinks in re- about them in relation to their other armed predecessors that that existed in the Spanish empire. And then related to what you said at the beginning, this sort of long continuity uh, of military interventions in both in Spain and and Latin America. uh, I wanted to ask you if we can see this moment of of the Bourbon reforms as one that ushers in a new political actor that eventually will make several interventions uh, in Latin America particularly in in the context of Spanish-American countries in this case.
0: Yes, I do think that there is, to answer the second question first, there's a great continuity between the bourbon reforms and militarism in the 19th century. And we haven't really um, said it, I think, uh, or analyzed it the way we should have. Um, A classic, Hypothesis for Latin America has been that of John Lynch, who claims that the wars of independence were so devastating that pretty much the military rises out of nothing and kind of like everything is destroyed. And then the caudillo sort of like rises in the middle of nowhere. It's like Facundo, no, the character of Sarmiento's novel, rising from the Pampas and ruling sort of like in a wild way. And sort of like that's the image of the caudillos that we've had. um I'm exaggerating that portrait, um, but in a way, that has been sort of like the general approach to this. There's a war of independence, a huge breakdown, and the military rises because there's not much else. I think that the military rises as and the caudillos rise in the case of Peru, um, because there's a long history of um military reform and support of the military that goes back not to independence, it goes back to the bourbon reforms and, and it goes, uh, we can see a huge breaking point in the 1760s with the big military reforms after the British take Havana but we can even go further back and see that this was, you know, a sort of like bourbon idea of Rule. They brought military officers to the court in Madrid, and navy officers in particular. They were the most knowledgeable at the time uh, with a scientific training, and they became the leaders of you know the reform program. And so, maybe that's why the military becomes so strong because there's this you know decades and decades and decades of reform and support for them. But yes, um, it's not. A completely new history the military you know has had an old history in Spain and military men of arms not the military men of arms were important characters in Cervantes novels you know in in the golden century but it's there is a big difference between those mid, that type of men of arms and the 18th century type because there was not as the army was not a centralized organized institution back in the 16th century. These were kind of like loose militias with prestige, yes, some mercenaries, but there was not an esprit of corp. It wasn't a corporation as such. And that's the odd development that's going to happen later on, which will have a big corporation uh, being formed by the Bourbons, supported by the Bourbons, with individuals that are loyal to the king. And I uh, can talk more about that later.
1: Mm-hmm. Great, great. And in in the in the context of of this sort of reformist spirit, the the book intro- introduces an idea uh, or advances an idea that sort of a revolution of merit of sorts occur- occurred in the Spanish Empire in the eighteenth century, and that basically I'm, I'm being a bit reductionist here, but that. This, the Bourbon monarchy wanted to transform the empire into more of a meritocracy than what it used to be, and so what what circumstances sort of prompted this transformation, and why why did this new dynasty think it was it was necessary to 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 change the tenor of of the empire in in that direction to take the empire in a direction of merit. Uh, or of a new type of merit, vis-à-vis what existed during the sixteenth century, during the seventeenth century, uh, under under the Habsburgs.
0: Um, yes, I think that this is a fundamental concept um, that sort of articulates the Bourbon reform program. I don't think it's a revolution of revolutionary concept, but it it is a concept that brought major change, and it was. It. It's everywhere. If you look at the, you know, the laws, the, the, the norms of the Bourbons, the, the text they sponsored, the proyectistas of the early 18th century, they are all talking obsessively about marriage, how men of marriage should govern Spain. And they should do so because Spain is falling behind. And it all comes, this all comes after the War of Succession in 1700s, the Bourbons, um, are supposed to take over the Spanish crown. There is a war uh, with Habsburg. And then after 13 years or so, Philip V takes over and um, succeeds to the Spanish crown, crown and brings new people to power. It's a whole new form of government. Um, he comes first with a bunch of Italian advisors and French advisors. And in practical terms, if we look at politics, Right. Um, this new court does not trust the old Habsburg courts, of course, because they had been waging wars, a war for like over a decade. And they don't trust those old nobles um, sitting in the court of Madrid. So they want new people and they bring their own ministries, ministers and, you know, all these Italian and French advisors. But they need Spaniards. And what they do is they look into the provincial elites and they look for people, well-trained people. They look for semi-professionally well-trained lawyers and military officers and na- navy officers. And one of the first things they do is they establish these naval and military schools to train new people and people they could trust and they could help them govern and recover pain and and conduct a major program of reform to make this empire profitable and to rule to be able to rule the way they want. They bring the intendancy system and what happens is that it is a centralizing project. So they are looking for uh, authorities who models and they establish in intendancies, right? Most of those intendentes are going to be military officers and they bring people like them to other positions. And later on, right, we will see in the 1760s, 1780s, that sort of like war becomes... It's like the background to everything. And while I, they are reforming, they are facing war. So the military becomes a lot more necessary. And they put military officers in key positions of power all along. And all the viceroys pretty much of the second half of the 18th century and military officers in
1: Peru. This, this idea of merit that sort of prompts the advance or the the rise of new military men, new 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 address uh, in in the in the realm of the of the letters, uh, you said it has an an immense subversive potential, and so and and the title of the book in turn also prompts the question of who should rule, where well, and and so my question is, in this context in which you have uh, rising new political actors, uh, the idea of merit running running deep, wouldn't the conditions be ripe to actually question the of the merits of the crown to rule?
0: Yeah, that's what happened. Um, um, and actually, the, the question of the title, the book, um, when I first started the project, I started reading um, texts by men of letters and military officers after independence. And that was the question that they had, who should rule, right? It's, and then they would write this report saying, I have more merits. Because I fought with my pen and my intellect, and you know all of that, and then the men of letters would say, "Well, but it was my blood, so my merit is is is, is more Fire. valuable than yours right and um, so that came on and on and on, so I went back to trace where that idea of merit came from, and then discovered this amazing world of the bourbon reforms and the bourbon authorities sponsoring and talking obsessively about merit. And it is, it is an, a new concept. Merit has existed all along in the Spanish world because there were these provanzas de méritos, old ones, old texts, but they were understood. These are documents where you would prove your worth to apply, say for a position in the, in the, in a, in, a, in the administration, or to become a priest, or enter a convent, even, but it was tied to purity of blood. Um, where yes, you would list say your skills and your talents, but what was most important was if you were of pure blood, meaning you were not an Indian or an or of African descent, or in Spain, right, you were not a Jew or a Moor. But um, it was not; it was about status. But in the 18th century, it's so much about skill and talent. Um, And this is the measure of a person's worth. Um, And that, I think, is a huge change. And what was surprising to me was to find the crown sponsoring this. I did not expect that, you know. And I did not expect all these bourbon officers um, writing about how it was necessary to have People of Merit, Campomanes, the minister of, you know, the big reforms of the 1760s, has this text about the, the education, the importance of education. And it's all about merit. Um, Juan Pablo de la Vida, Campillo, you, so many of them. Mm-hmm. And these texts, um, along with articles in the newspapers, spread and caused an immense effect, because I could see then later on, you know, People claiming or writing letters in a more private manner, not in an official way, using the same ideas. And um, it becomes subversive in my way, in my mind, because ultimately this, um, the society does not change in the same speed. You can write a, a very cutting edge text with very subversive ideas, but the world does not necessarily have to change accordingly. And so, um, there are all these expectations out there that men of marriage should have positions of power, that authorities should be of merit. And then I, in the, in the book, I, I provide a few examples of how the Bourbons try to reconcile this, these two worlds, right? Say, for example, in the military. And that is for me, the institution that shows it best because, um, The military regulations of the reform program are so detailed that you can have it's like two volumes of of laws uh, detailing how the new military should be, and there it's it's so much about skill and talent and who should be where, and according to what they have achieved in the battlefield or if they had been disciplined. You know how it is. Then I could see later on when these reforms were implemented the huge contradictions that you know arose when for example you had ceremonials right and you had the new military with the new officers there and the old nobles. So the 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 the, the authorities had to provide instructions on where to position say an old noble versus an officer. You who should come first in a procession, where should they sit, right? And they had to accommodate, and they it it was these huge efforts to to adjust sort of like a new institution to an old world order. And I think it is maybe in some places where the military was not as large as in Peru, maybe these reforms and all of these things that I talk about in the book don't play as big of a role as it did in Peru. But there in Peru, you had a huge military, um with a lot of power and and it's an institution also we can talk about sort of like the the racial aspects of this because it's an institution designed in a modern way right where merit plays a big role and that accommodates all these castas all those people of different racial ethnic backgrounds and promising that if they performed outstanding actions they could move up in the military ladder and that had a repercussion in the social ladder because they would be treated with respect, with dignity. You know, they would wear uniforms. They would be treated in a certain way. They would never be punished in an offensive way. Never their honor should be targeted and so on and so forth. And so for a society like Peru, this, I think this, this had a huge impact.
1: Right, and so just just to follow up on 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 that one, so <clears throat> one of one of the one of the groups that make an appearance at, at points in your book is sort of this new militia, sometimes mi- militia corps or uh, batallones, the the parados, uh, and so so h- how how did that come to be for for uh, the non-initiated in in colonial Latin American history, and 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 how. You mentioned that, for example, two of the of the, uh, the the two first Peruvian presidents were also sort of men of of, of mixed racial ancestry. So, would that have been even possible? You, you think if if this new sort of ethos of of merit had not been instilled in the in the late 18th century?
0: I really don't think so. Maybe other people coming from different <laughs> you know perspectives <laughs> would think otherwise, but I don't think so. And I think that this, I. The first Caldillos of Peru, right? The emblematic Caldillos, Agustin Gamarra and Andrés de Santa Cruz, were the first sort of like Peruvian Caldillos, because we had Simon Bolívar and San Martín coming, right? Um, sort of like national Caldillos, although Santa Cruz is Bolivian. Um were of mixed descent, um, half Indians, half Spaniards, and they were it's the classic um Militia people, classic military story here. They were incorporated into militias in Alto Peru, in Cusco, in the Cusco region, Bolivia region, and they were trained sort of like they were trained as militia, you know, the first stages, and they moved up and they were mestizos, so they belonged to those, you know, units. But then when war happened, they moved up they um
1: climbed the ladder
0: yeah they they climbed the ladder and also things became very turbulent and very complicated in we're talking now in the eighteen you know tens, eighteen fifteens. And this what's interesting, these are the units where they fought and they were trained. They were the units commanded by this um the this character that I call a national caudillo, military, a loyal caudillo. Um Jose Manuel de Goyeneche, who was this wealthy Creole who kind of like really organized all the the Alto Peru army. Um, and that became one of the most successful branches of the military in Peru. And so uh, Santa Cruz and Gamara were trained there. They moved up. And then when San Martín came, Argentinian Caudillo um came and sort of invaded Peru with the insurgent ar- armies, um, these two men switched sides. And they, when they did, because they were already officers in the Royal Armies of Peru, we're talking here 1820. We're not talking about the 1810s. This is very late in the game. They switched sides in 1820 and they immediately were moved up as the, in the highest positions as, uh, of the army. Which is something that had could most probably not have been possible in the royal armies of Peru, because the incorporation of um, castas could happen to a certain extent. they would never be governing Peru or be governing a unit. maybe right. who knows maybe if the if the wars had lasted twenty more years and the, the Spanish were totally broke, maybe they would that would have happened, but not at that time. And right. so they switched sides and then they became these super important military officers and leaders. So I don't think that their story could have been possible without this background. And going back to the idea of merit, um, these are not caudillos that come from the pampas, from sort of like just leading, you know, the peasants of their estates. These are people who have commanded under the rules of a military it, with, you know, have been trained professionally or semi-professionally and they, they know how to rule, they have a sense that they are entitled to rule, that they have an entitlement to rule and perhaps more importantly, people throughout all these years of war are used to also seeing them lead, you know? To sort of like agreeing with yes, the, these people, you know, they have fought this war, they have led these armies, they they have a claim to rule, um, and I think that all goes back to this old history.
1: Right, and we we, we talk about the military extensively, but sort of as a segue, uh, that the other people who who you said had a, a claim to rule were these other. Uh, men, the men of letters, the sort of the, the sons of a new republic of letters, to a certain extent, created as, as you were saying initially, sort of in a context of enhanced exchanges of newspapers and sort of le- creation of new learned societies, etc. So, can you talk the, to the listeners a little bit more about sort of uh, how how did this other group of men came to be and how? Sort of, they imagine themselves whether whether they had a su- such as a tight knit identity, perhaps as as the the military guys had.
0: Yes. So first, to go back in time, um, when the first sort of like in the first era of reforms, right, when the Bourbons um, are sort of thinking about changing the way the Spanish world functions. They need lawyers because they need new laws, you know, to new regulations to change things. And also they are adamant about changing traditions. The Bourbons come with these neoclassical ideals where, you know, they would change everything. Uh, The way feasts are conducted, the way art is performed, the way um, poems are written. Everything has to be different. Everything has to serve the purpose of communicating a clear message. And this is not just a spanish Bourbon thing. This is part of, you know, a change in the world of letters. It's the beginning of the Enlightenment and, 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 and also absolutism and reformism, right? Most of these monarchies are doing the same thing in Europe. And so lawyers, men of letters, orators, newspaper writers are in, much needed and so they are called and they function and they exist because there are new spaces for them. But things get very complicated because um, unlike in the world of the military where pretty much there is, there is not that much to compete with, you know, there's not a, a military that exists in an organized way before the 18th century or state organized way. Unlike in that world, in the world of letters is a lot more complicated because the Spanish monarchy was this, the monarchy of the letrados, you know, of, of the golden, the, the golden century. There are so many writers, universities, abound schools, and all of that is tightly controlled by people trained in 17th century ways. You know, these are defenders of the scholastic method. These are defenders of traditions. And so these new men of letters, which I call new, um, have to find spaces um, in that complicated world. And they operate very close to the state, very close to the reformers. So it's interesting because when we see newspapers, for example, which is an 18th century phenomenon, pretty much, they are for the most part state-sponsored. And that's a space for these men of letters. And if we read the text there, it's incredible to see how cutting edge and how the, how um, uh, the space for critique that these people had, you know, there's space for the Bourbon sponsor the critique of the Habsburg way. It goes out of control many times, but they are sponsoring it. And so, and then as, you know, the Bourbons try to reform in a more intense way. There are many failures. Campomanes can't really put forward his very radical project of practically transforming, you know, guilds into industries. That's, and, and schools into sort of like places where they will form, um super professionally trained people. That never happens. And so the Bourbons then sort of like sponsor schools. And in those schools, royal schools, well, you have these new men of letters trying to put together reforms. But theirs is a kind of like, if I look at this whole story, in a way it's a, it's a tragic story because there is no the world doesn't change as fast as their expectations.
1: Right, precisely. So the... If we fast forward sort of a decade or two we we find ourselves sort of in the in the early nineteenth century and in a sort of war era of war revolution turmoil uh Spain has been invaded by napoleon right so they Napoleon captures the spanish king and so you you start seeing uh, or not necessarily start but you see very clear during those years and you characterize this uh, very very well how the men of letters and the men of the military starting sort of competing very explicitly about who should rule now that there's no one there, quote unquote, or like the king is absent. And so you you, you characterized uh, sort of that the men of letters uh, in the assembly of the Cortes in Cádiz had deep concerns over military de- despotism. Uh, José Blanco White, particularly the Spanish publicist uh, writing from, from London, also voices Bends one may say this concern about military despotism, and that also in certain ways so, uh, appears in, in 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 Spanish America. So I I wanted to ask you if you could talk a bit about sort of this gulf between the men of letters and 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 the men of arms, and whether that that is ever solved. When, when, one may ask uh, in. In Spanish America,
0: in Spanish America, not. But in Latin America, hopefully, we have <laughs> turned the page. Um, I'm not so sure about that. But let' going back to Cádiz, um, which is a fundamental moment, right? Because in 1808, Napoleon invades, and there is a vacuum of power in Spain, right? There's no king, or you know, he takes the Spanish monarch and his father to France and puts his brother José. In charge, and so this is a it's it's fascinating because men of letters are ready uh, to sort of like take over this. It's like you see all these juntas organizing, where these sort of like provincial elites organizing in the absence of the king. They resort to this old tradition of organizing in the absence of the king and calling for a general assembly um, to rule in the meantime, right? But um, in the meantime, also they decide that, you know, they are going to transform the Spanish world into a liberal order, right? To catch up with the times and 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 transform Spain into a Spanish constitutional monarchy. So they are about to do that, but there's war and we cannot forget that. And I think we have a little bit in the historiography um, because if, you know, if we just look at what the people in the assembly were doing and how they were trying to build, you know, to create, to to put together a plan for elections and, and, you know, create a constitution, that's fine to analyze all of this. It's it's so important, but we should never forget that they are doing it in the middle of a major war and they're facing those constraints. So, um. I wanted to to understand the the way they conceive of themselves, of the role of what they are doing and and the the visions that they have had, but then i i I realized that if, if in reading what they wrote they their their tremendous concern is the power of the military because they they can't they really can't do what they want. And Cadiz is not a success story in any way, um, because the minute they start organizing, uh, they face a parallel kind of parallel set of authorities, which is these you know, military officers trying to wage a war against Napoleon with the British also in command of resources. And so, very early on, they relinquish the executive authority of the provisional government. Um, This junta, this assembly of men of letters, relinquish that authority to a regency composed of mostly military officers and who are going to um, put obstacles to any reform that targets their power. So when it came to the big question of um, in the constitution of the power of the military and creating uh, an institution that would be subordinated to civilian power, they can't do anything about that. And they fail. And also, which is where Blanco White comes up, um, There, uh, when it comes to the problem of Spanish America, right? Um, while Spain is facing this invasion and trying to put together a resistance, in Spanish America, the elites are doing the same, right? They are organizing and trying to form provisional governments that also could allow them for sound autonomy, right? They are also fighting for autonomy. And what happens is that they face the repressive side of the... It depends on where you are in Spanish America, but in many cases, it's divisor with the armies.
1: Right. Yeah. In the and case per- of Peru, per- it's
0: clearly so same as in Cuba, right? And the Viceroy of Peru will send armies to Uruguay, to your part of the world, and to Argentina and other places to fight those autonomous, those efforts of autonomy, because Abascal, the Viceroy of Peru, saw them as possible um, steps towards independence and towards, you know, revolution. And he always was a step ahead in repressing and so, um, who sees this very clearly is from London, is Jose Maria Blanco White. If we read his writings um, there, he, his main concern is when it comes to the problem of Spanish America and the, and the violence and the efforts that, you know, repress and these sort of like autonomous efforts transitioning towards separatism he puts the blame on the military officers and on the military repression and on the war. And so for me, it was very, it was kind of when I I discovered that it was sort of like the piece that connected the two parts of the history I wanted to to tell.
1: Right, precisely. And we we can sort of uh, talk a, a bit more perhaps about this sort of, uh, uh, ascent of the of the military in in the during the, during the, the the wars of the eighteen tens, sometimes called the wars of independence, uh, for at least some regions of of Spanish America. So how how did this uh, repressive effort related to the the previous sort of ascent of the military and how that transitioned in the case of Peru, perhaps fairly lately, into a, a, an effort towards independence and sort of separation from Spain and, and republicanism eventually?
0: Well, um, it's fundamental in explaining the this um, late transition, if we want to call it that way. Peru um, did not have... Um, Junta, a national, not a local assembly, and the vice were always impeded. Neither had uh, Cuba. And I think it's important to consider that the places with the two largest armies in the Spanish empires did not have juntas. So they did not have a space for um, the organization of a local autonomous government. They did not have really a space for or time for elections. There were elections in Peru held very rapidly for representatives to the Cortes in Spain. And throughout that process, that was like two or three years, um, the viceroy was creating all kinds of obstacles to impede or to make it more complicated. So really what happens is that we get to 1820 when San Martín invades Peru, and there are then three years of war or four till 1824, the Declaration of Independence. And until then, there has been no, no, um, training or no experience of self-government. Nothing. Um, there, there were no assemblies, no really spaces where civilians could really get together and, there were some, you know, but in the middle of wars, and always there was a military dictator or a military officer in command or creating obstacles. So, what can you expect for later then, right? right. Um, how can, how could civilians then say, well, it's the time for or, to organize? Later on, what we'll see is is uh, decades and decades of military dictatorships. And they are unstable um, because there is, you know, conspiracies and the the groups that support them are not solid either. And, yeah. But there's always the expectation. It's interesting since, you know, independence that civilians should rule, at least among them, that it was their time to rule.
1: But that that sort of was always impaired by this sort of a competing group, right? That that that, that wielded the, the the power of of arms yeah, of all things. So uh, I I wanted to to sort of conclude the conversation about the book, and, and we can talk about uh, a, a little bit more about your future work in a second. But I wanted to sort of perhaps invite you to do a more uh, sweeping reflection, sort of in the, in the same way that, that that you started about this idea of meritocracy, and so we we. We have, in still in Spanish America and in and in Latin America more more generally, sometimes this sort of aspiration towards meritocratic politics, right? And and that seems to have run against a, a number of obstacles. Uh, and and most recently, so, I mean, you're, one of the, one of the most interesting things about your book is that you can read it, sort. Uh, Sort of uh, bearing in mind new new scandals against uh, about corruption, cronism, venality, uh, to a certain extent that are occurring in, in the region, and uh, and some of the vocabularies, although very d- different in context, uh, uh, appear uh, yet again. So I just I just wanted to to ask you about whether there is, whether you see this this. Um, sort of civil service to a certain extent meritocracy having its first iteration in in bourbon Spanish America uh, or 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 is or is that completely outlandish? To...
0: <laughs> we are historians, so we, we think long term. But um okay. maybe we should go back uh, to the Habsburg era, I right. think, quite honestly. Um, and I think that we need more political histories for that reason that you mentioned. And I think that's where we're coming from. And I think from what you've I've heard, your your work also comes from there, right? Where we want to understand why is it that we are still having the same problems or or sort of like these persistent problems of first we don't have a meritocratic system really working um in in we're doing so much better, of course. No comparison, right? <laughs> still, like the reform of the university is still, you know, um, that's quite not so meritocratic yet. And and I think in in terms of politics, we we have to um, work more to understand uh, why do we why do we do things the way we do. And I think we have to understand um, how. Um, these sort of like usages come from this this way of fighting, this way of discussing, this way of not being able to find compromises, for example. Which is I s I've tried to to sort of like discuss that in the book with Blanco White, sort of like always claiming, why could we not find a compromise during the War of Independence, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And there's
0: no spaces for that. And yeah, I think. Um, I hope that my discussion of merit and sort of like the origins of this expectation and this effort at, at reform that sort of like succeeded in certain aspects because it it really um, create, opened a new set of ambitions that didn't exist before. And I think right. it comes from this era and we have inherited that in the right. military and in the world of letters, that the value of your worth is your skill, your talent. Um, And that was very powerful in a society that was designed as an equal, uh, as that of Peru, Um, racially, socially. If all of a sudden you read a text like that, and you sort of like, you know, you are a mulatto and you join... militia and you're being told that well you know if you if you do certain things that you can rise um and that if you are a militia member you are not going to be you know um punished with public humiliation as it used to be because you deserve honor and respect and so that comes from there and we have to understand why certain things don't work and Perhaps the longer we go back in time, the better. <laughs>
1: the better.
0: And, you know, well,
1: I don't know. I, I, I wanted. to sort of uh, end the conversation with uh, ask by asking you what what are you working on these days and whether it it has any relation to to this uh, already published project.
0: Thank you. Yes, I'm going back in time now. I'm going back to an old project that I had on the theater. Um, to a, it's. To, it's called theater and politics in the Iberian world and oh, wow. I focus on fascinating it's an ambitious title but it's it's focusing on Lima Havana and Madrid and again my goal there is to to understand you know how certain ideas spread and um, where did people get certain ideas of equality power justice um, and and then, how did the interaction? Because the theater is a fascinating case for Spanish America. We're talking about mostly illiterate societies, right? And the theater in cities like Lima could hold up to like a thousand people, sometimes eight hundred people. And there were representations all the time. This is the, the era of the golden century, and so um, it's a major part of the 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 Spanish form way of rule to have a theater, to have plays. And so through documents and, and text, I just want to, to sort of like look at politics from that angle.
1: Right. A very performative dimension of politics, also, one may yes. say, and more no inclusive. pun intended. <laughs> and
0: more inclusive too, because here we have Indians and mestizos and, in mulatos and elites, all in the theater, in different spaces, but all interacting, and there were scandals. It's a fascinating world.
1: That that sounds that sounds amazing. I'm very very excited for. Thank you.
0: Well, I need a new life, maybe to do it, and I'll try.
1: <laughs> well, thank you, thank you very very much for this exciting conversation, Professor Ricketts. And. Um, And the book we discussed was Monica Ricketts' Who Should Rule, Men of Arms, The Republic of Letters, and The Fall of the Spanish Empire, published by Oxford University Press in 2017.
0: Thank you so much, Alvaro. Thank you. A pleasure.
1: Please, And special thanks to the Johns Hopkins University radio studios in Baltimore. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the New Books Network on your favorite platform or listen to our podcasts by going going to newbooksnetwork.com. See you next time. The book we discussed was Monica Ricketts' Who Should Rule? Men of Arms, The Republic of Letters, and the Fall of the Spanish Empire, published by Oxford University Press in 2017. Special thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Radio Studios in Baltimore. We hope that you enjoyed this conversation. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the New Books Network on your favorite platform or download our podcasts by going to newbooksnetwork.com. See you next time.